The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's Tuesday, November 11th, and on behalf of the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I hope everyone had a safe Halloween. I'm Ian Kreiss. And I'm Mirtha Donastorg. Mirtha Donastorg talks to Brittany Jesse, backup singer to the meteoric star Leon Bridges, about life on the road, what it's like to be a backup singer, and how cold Jimmy Fallon's studio is. Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review, this week he reviews the album Falling Inside by N. Landon, and Jake Winters has a review of the film Cop Car. When I first heard Coming Home by Leon Bridges, I was hooked. He didn't have a full album yet, only two songs. Had been on his first tour for only two months. But I was struck by the soulfulness, the vulnerability in that one song. And I'm not the only one. In less than a year, the 26-year-old from Fort Worth, Texas has toured from Norway to Norfolk, played on Jimmy Fallon, Conan, opened for Pharrell in London. But he's not been alone. Throughout it all, Leon's been supported by a group of other musicians, notably his backup singer, Brittany Jesse, a grounded, gracious musician. Brittany and I talked on Skype about her career, what touring is like, the temperature of Jimmy Fallon's studio, and how through it all, she stays humble. Good, how are you? Doing well. Let's just start from the beginning. How did you start singing? Around nine. Okay. I was just playing around. I didn't know it was a serious thing until I was like 13. (laughs) And then I didn't become fully confident in my singing until like my 20s. So still pretty new. And it's still weird that it's what I do now. So still getting used to the fact that, oh, you sing for a career now (laughs) (laughs) when you were nine was that what you wanted to do or was it just this fun thing as kids as young girls we want to be like either moms or a doctor or something but I was like I want to be a singer first and then a mom second (laughs) what did you start singing when you started gospel I started writing at 13 oh wow and then uh, I was living in Cincinnati at the time so I was able to have my first song featured on a CD, wow. which was cool. And then I sang on it, which I was like, it's oh, weird. <laughs> <laughs> Who have been some of your influences in your music, but also in how you live your life? Uh, Natalie Cole, 
pretty much majority of my childhood. Um, Corinne Bailey Ray, Jill Scott, Betty Carter, Carmen McRae, Leon Lavis. It's just so many. I love great songwriters. But yeah, Natalie. Her lyrics are really good. I know she sings a lot of standards, but she still makes it like it's her. Sometimes you listen to her, you're like, oh, that's not her song. <laughs> she's covering it, but you would never know because she's just that good. How do you think your faith has inspired your music? Because I know it's a really important thing to you. Yeah. Before, I would just really use the Bible for mm -hmm. most of my lyrics. And for my single, uh, Darling, I actually use a chapter out of the book of James for that one. It helps a lot. But yeah. How did you meet Leon? Was that in Texas? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in Denton, Texas, like five years ago on this video shoot. Oh, Lord. It's, uh, <laughs> it's called Walk Worthy by Dylan Chase. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is a Christian rap video. And he was dancing. And I was like the little girl he was talking to in the video. <laughs> so we look like babies. <laughs> and so you met him on the side of the video. And was it then like you guys knew you were going to work together or just kept on bumping into each other he was super shy like <laughs> i was like why are you not talking and then i kind of broke the ice by saying oh you look like leon from the five heartbeats like i get that a lot <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah we didn't really talk until he called me up for the uh album which i didn't know was happening and i didn't know he could sing <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, I'll come help, whatever. Yeah, why not? So when was that? August. Oh, last August. It's only been a little over a year. Yeah, since. insane. And when did you realize that this thing that you were doing with Leon was going to was starting to get really big, was starting to blow up? Uh, that night in November, we performed at the Stone Fox in Nashville, and I was super nervous. My legs were shaking. <laughs> It was like there's so many people here it was over capacity and it was just filled with people from the industry like Adele's manager and somebody else's tour manager and somebody's label person it was just a lot of people wow. and I just like got in a booth and just crouched down until it was time to go on stage <laughs> <laughs> but that was yeah that was insane do you still do that before you go on stage crouching a booth no, I just drink a Red Bull now. <laughs> <laughs> How much influence do you think you have as backup vocals? Quite a bit, mm -hmm. which it's still kind of, you know, surprising me at times. He'll just be like, hey, I got this song. And he'll just start singing. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe if I'll do blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Do you like yeah. it? Mm -hmm. It's like the easiest job ever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Are you still working on uh, your own music while on tour? Yeah. I use this uh, app, iMachine. I've always known how to make beats since sophomore year in high school. So that's what I do in my spare time. Is it hard to balance being a backup singer and working on somebody else's music and then also pursuing your own music? Not really. It's only hard when I'm not able to like sing it out, my stuff that I want to, because I'm performing every night or if I'm like trying to catch up on sleep, but it's not that hard. Sometimes it is. Like now it would be. Yeah. Do you think you've changed as an artist since starting this thing with Leon? 
would say, yeah, I know that before I was super sensitive, but it teaches you how to develop thick skin and how to be patient and just be flexible and be ready for anything. Because every day is something new. I was like, um, today we're just chilling. Tomorrow I could wake up and go to radio. I think with just having thick skin definitely help anybody get through this. Is that what you think is necessary in the music industry as a backup singer? I think both. If you can handle criticism, it's for you. But if you can't, don't don't do this. (laughs) Why do you think that Leon's music has just grown so quickly? Why do you think people are so drawn to it? Uh, it's refreshing and great to listen to and super catchy. As much as I sing it every day, I'm like, I'll catch myself singing it in the morning <laughs> or, or in the shower. Just with him, he's just super personable and just so fun. And it shows, you know, as he performs and through his music. So it's, it's great. It's perfect timing for today. Is he still shy? He's good in there. Not as much, though. I would think opening for Pharrell. How was that? It was crazy. I had to, like, get myself together because I was so nervous. I'm like, I had a poster of Pharrell when I was 14 with his shirt off above (laughs) my bed. (laughs) So it was surreal. So who are you traveling with, the entire band? Mm -hmm. We're on the road together (laughs) 24-7. I saw your face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that a good thing? I, I imagine there's some difficulties. It's pretty rare that I have any issues, but no, it's, it's fun. It's like traveling with my brother, but 11 of them. <laughs> <laughs> yep, all, all of them. All lovely, lovely, lovely men. Are you the only girl? Yeah, still. <laughs> but it's cool. It's not bad. I like to feel like part of the guys sometimes. What is a tour bus like? I'm so curious. Is it plush and (laughs) double-decker? Not this one. This one's just like first floor. Hold on. This is... Oh, you're on the bus right now? Yeah. Uh, I'm in the back, so... Wow. It's pretty nice. That is really nice, actually. Do you get a new tour bus for, like, every every continent? Mm-hmm. Except when Australia happens, I think we'll just be flying from place to place. Wow. When's Australia happening? It is the day after Christmas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All the way till January 7th. Okay. So, like, a good three weeks. Do they build in time for you guys to rest? No. <laughs> No, not really. It'll happen every so often, but we're fine. Is it weird being recognized on the street? For me, yes. For Leon, no. He's used to it? Yeah. But for me, I'm like, oh, you know me? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) What has been the best performance, like the best show? A show that really sticks in your mind? New Orleans on this front. And then in Europe, there was Madrid that shocked us because they knew everything word for word. (laughs) (laughs) They were even trying to clap on a river, which is 
very funny. <laughs> I, I guess they really felt it. It really, really got them going. That was, that was awesome. And my grandparents came out to Madrid for that show. So this New Orleans show, what made it special? Just being there, being in that atmosphere and at Tipitinas. And then he brought on a horn section. So his cousin and his cousin's friends are joining Jeff on stage. Just, it was like a giant party. It was fun. <laughs> really cool. What about Conan and Jimmy Fallon? How, how was that? Man, I feel weird that I say that or that anyone says that. It was really, really cool, and I was still very nervous, mostly on Jimmy Fallon. I'm like, everybody watches Jimmy Fallon. Okay. All right. But, yeah, I was shaking that day, and on top of it, the studio is, like, freezing cold. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that doesn't help either. It blows my mind that I did that show, and I actually just watched it uh, when I went back home on my break. I was just like, wow, this is what we do. It's crazy. What do you do when you're at home? <laughs> uh, eat snacks and watch Netflix. <laughs> you just don't think about the music? No. And I don't leave my house. Like, <laughs> I really don't. How does your family feel about touring your career? But they're just really proud. They tell me every time I talk to them on the phone. It's just nice to hear. Because at first, they were giving me a hard time because they didn't think I could make this a career. Mm. Like they wanted me to be, like, realistic. I don't know. I, I don't want to do anything but sing. And they were just like, you need to stay in school and get your degree. And I'm like, this is not what I want to do right now. <laughs> so they're very supportive now, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Did you go to college? Mm-hmm. I went to the University of North Texas for a year, which I was not ready for. And after that, school went downhill because mm-hmm. I just wanted to do music. And I took some music classes, like ear training, musicianship, and theory, and I did fine. Everything else? No. I'll go back, though, for sure. Where are you guys going next? So, in terms of tour, yeah, but also, like, another album, more performances? What's happening? We have more performances than we have time to work on the album. Mm-hmm. And he has new songs that we'll play around with, but majority of our time this year and next year straight touring completely like they've already posted next year's schedule what do you hope your future your career looks like what do you want for yourself i just want to be somewhere singing on stage producing for somebody or myself and being able to mentor a group of girls young girls which is what i've done in the past and i feel like i have an image to uphold when it comes to these young girls that have followed me for years, and I, I love being a part of that, a big sister, <laughs> something, doing something like that in the future. What is yeah. this image that you try to keep up? Just to show, like, you don't have to, like, be half-naked all the time on stage to gain attention. Like, you could be so confident in yourself and be totally okay with who you are. People will come around. Because, you know, we see all this stuff on TV all the time. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, wear your boobs out, wear your, your butt out, it's fine. But you don't have to do that. Leave more to the imagination. <laughs> yeah. I see, your, I see your performing in Paris. I was just like, oh, my gosh. She <laughs> is so beautiful, so classy. Thanks. So I, I can definitely see what you're going for. And it's beautiful. Yeah. 
What do you hope people get from your music? What are you trying to spread to everybody? I just want to make sure that I stay passionate about what I do. And hopefully they can feel where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out mm-hmm. myself. But I do know that I, I watch a lot that we have these artists nowadays that just throw out these songs. And there's no depth. There's no soul, most definitely. Uh, but I'm trying to work on and trying to get better at writing. But I'm still figuring out some more things musically about myself I have yet to explore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like millennials do. Mm-hmm. How do you like process it all? So you started recording the album in August, and you went on tour starting when? Yeah, in November. Yeah. And then from there, it's just different continents. And yeah. how do you process it all? Sometimes we'll, well, as a band, we'll just sit together and just like think about what we've done recently and in the past, and it's just like, oh, okay, this is real. Let's go to the next one, but <laughs> I think I'm just really humble about it, mm-hmm. and that's that's the only way I know how to be. We don't even try. We don't even try. on the Triangle. I'm Mirtha Donna Storg. Hello, this is Jake Winters for I Am the Triangle, and today I will be giving my review of Cop Car. Cop Car captures what it's like to be a 10-year-old boy, obsessed with guns, cars, and swear words. Not only does this movie do a great job of building these characters, but the story is also unique. Cop Car tells the tale of two young boys that come across a cop car in the middle of nowhere and take it for a joyride. These boys have a familiar dynamic that has been used before, but aside from that I found their relationship to be realistic and believable making the two's adventures enjoyable to watch. The movie begins with the shorter boy telling the other boy to repeat the swear words he utters. This right away gives a feeling that there is an order. One is the leader, and the other follows. This really hits the head on the nail with many groups of young boys. It seems there is always one who is willing to dare the others and lead them into dangerous situations. Everyone involved enjoys what's happening and wants to take the next step, but there needs to be someone to nudge them into it. The childish aspect of the film is relatable and feels real. Many times I feel childhood relationships are idolized by cinema, but Cop Car gave a good representation of a real one. The plot is actually kind of absurd, which makes it great. If I had found a cop car in the woods when I was 10, I'm not sure if I would have driven away in it, but I probably would have messed around with it. These kids are sort of intimidated at first, but they dive head in eventually. What they get mixed up in is the slightly unlikely part. Kevin Bacon plays the cop who has his cop car stolen by the two kids. He fits right into the New Age cowboy role, the sheriff of a town that lies on the edge of the Great Plains in the base of the Rocky Mountains. He has a mustache, a pickup truck, and two dogs. Exactly what you'd expect from this type of man. His character is placed within the duality of being a cop as well as a criminal, having to show kindness to some and harshness to others. The character really is probably just a bad guy, but there is definitely a likable side to his character, very similar to how the character Walter White feels in Breaking Bad. And as always, Kevin Bacon does a great job in his role. The scenery in the film is beautiful, as you would expect from anywhere remotely close to the Rocky Mountains. The film puts the scenery to use in many shots of the kids walking across the landscape and scenes out on the roads in the middle of nowhere. Many shots in the film create the anticipation expected from a thriller, 
In particular, there is a point in the film where Kevin Bacon's character is stealing a car. Ironic in the context of this film. But anyway, the movie has you on the edge of your seat in a place where there is only a some small amount of danger. It's a little overplayed, but it does the job well. It puts you in the shoes of Kevin Bacon's character and helps you to realize the kind of intense stress he's under. I found the end of the movie to be particularly well done. We don't find out what happens to our main characters in the end, but you can see what the next step will likely be. And while the movies are sometimes cut short and the open endings are frustrating, this time it is very well done. If we were to know what happened, the movie may be seen as too morbid. And since we do not know, the movie is far less sad. Kalkar did a good job of being both satisfying but not too revealing. The movie was directed by John Watts, who is going to be directing the newest revision of Spider-Man. It is likely that this film helped land him the job, and rightfully so. The film is well done. While it is cookie cutter in a way, it also breaks its mold, going beyond what is typically seen in the theaters. Cop Car is a thriller at its core, but also is an adventure and action movie. The movie builds suspense and characters nicely, but not perfectly. It is hard to find something bad to say about the film, while it is also hard to say anything that is outstanding about it. It was enjoyable, and while it is not the greatest story in the world, Cop Car is different enough that I feel it is worth the amount of time it takes to view, but not much more than that. You can rent this movie on Amazon Prime or pick it up in a red box. Thank you for tuning into this week's movie review. Feel free to send any suggestions or comments to the email address publicaffairs at wknc.org. I'm always glad to hear feedback and opinions. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. Have a good night. Hello and welcome once again to the Modest Mouth Review with me, Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle. Oh sweet, only the second week of having a name and already it sounds official. So, as you know, this is a review show for stuff in the vein of rock and indie rock. That said, I've already deviated miles away from those genres once, so I don't feel too bad for straying just a little outside of that today. The album I'll be reviewing this time is called Falling Inside by N. Lannon, or Niles Lannon as I'll be referring to him for simplicity's sake. And it's sort of indie, sort of indie rock, and sort of indie folk electronica. God, the subgenres for indie and obscure bands? Like, one of these days we're just gonna have to come up with an entirely new genre for music with too many subgenres to be defined properly. Anyways, this is Lennon's third solo album and fifth overall album, counting his work with the duo Sacred Caves and the band N.LN. The release of his albums over time is actually kind of amazing. Most bands will release an album once every two, three years max. This guy released his first album in 2004, his second in 2004 as well, his third with N.LN in 2007, his fourth with Sacred Caves in 2012, and finally this one in July 2015. That's on average three to four years between each album. Now as an average, that's a lot of time to be spending per album. If you look at it objectively, he's had a career spanning 16 years with five albums total, only three of which were produced solo. Maybe not excessively long gestation periods, but when you compare it to someone on the opposite end, like Pink Floyd, who essentially released an album a year for nine years, and then every two years up until 1983, that's a stark contrast. Anyways, I digress. I'm obsessed with music trivia, you already know that. What's important is this album, and that's what I'm going to talk about now. Just gotta stay strong and not think about how interesting it is that when Roger Waters left Pink Floyd, the band put out two more albums. Wait, stop! We're talking about falling inside! Crap, get it together! Okay, so... Like I said, this album has a lot of different subgenres. Okay, so, like I said, this album has a lot of different subgenres. It's really interesting to look at because it changes from song to song. Even the bands I can compare it to change pretty drastically from song to song. 
For the first song, it sounds a lot like a band whose name I literally can't say on the air without slaughtering it, which makes me so mad, so I'm sorry to those who are about to hear me say it. The band is commonly referred to on the air as Star Effer. Effer as in the F-bomb. You know the band. Their influence can actually be heard throughout the album, although it fades in and out. This song and several others sound like a mellowed-out, chill side project for the members of Star Effer. In fact, I actually had to Google that to see if it was the case. The second song sounds like Western States Motel, the third is super Beck sounding, the fourth is like a folk version of Tame Impala, and the fifth is like the Turtles, except they're playing a funky funeral song in 1970s Envisioning of the Future. Need I go on because I'm going to anyways. The sixth song sounds like Mozzie Star mixed with Jethro Tull, which is weird on its own. The seventh song sounds like Iron and Wine. The eighth is Beck again, but get ready because the ninth is Pinback and then immediately into Solo Tom Petty. What? What? How does that even happen? Then the 10th and 12th songs sound a bit like Silver Sun pickups mixed with Goat Yay. At this point, I'm not even really surprised. I know the average person isn't going to know who half these bands even are, but good God, believe me, this is some weird variety. And despite this, the whole album manages to keep an overall unified feel. It shouldn't be possible, but it is. Going back to what I said before I started the whole rant, for those of you keeping track at home, the genre span of this is indie, indie folk, Indie pop, folk, electronica, indie electronica, indie folk rock, folk rock, pop, electronica, indie rock, and just folk electronica. I'm at a loss for words at this point. No, sorry, that's a lie because I have so many more words. This album is just so smooth and calm and yet emotional and driven and fantastical and brilliant. At first it sounds repetitive, but then by about the 15 second mark on every song, it evolves into its own completely unique thing. I can't talk about this album properly as a unified piece because while it's just that, it's so brilliantly diversified and complex that I can't do it justice without talking about every single song on its own, and I can't do that because there's 11 songs on the album and I only have 10 minutes. God, why? Okay. Okay. Just gotta calm down again. I'm gonna rapidly ramble off a few of my top points for each song and then we're gonna go straight into what the final notes are. Ready? Good. Me neither. Here goes. Track 1, Killing All These Machines. It's soft and delicate with beautiful guitar and minimal percussion and with whispered vocals that continue throughout the album. It's sort of playful and mysterious and the song comes together perfectly as a whole. This song is the strongest resemblance to Star Effort out of any on the album. Track 2, Endless Night. This track, like several others, uses mainly acoustic guitars to focus with incredibly subtle ambience in the background to add a layer of complexity to the song. The percussion is very similar to the last song. There's this great vocal harmonic that adds in a touch of electronica. It pops in and pops out and sort of ties the whole thing together perfectly. This song sounds like it's filling your head completely by the end. Lots of reverb, very smooth. Track 3, Dreamer. Oh my god, this song is so Beck. It's my favorite on the entire album. The beat is catchy and driving without it being stupidly repetitive and simple. This synth comes in and I swear to god it's like heaven spilled out and entered my body through my ears for a split second. It's the best synth use I've ever heard. The percussion is maintained through claps and the whole song sounds like a dream due to its perfect use of reverb. And if you don't love this song, there might be something wrong with your soul. Track 4, Another Love. This is getting intense. This song is weirdly atmospheric and mournful and slightly psychedelic. The vocals drop in complexity here, but the guitar becomes much more interesting. The electronica aspect of these tracks really starts to come through, becoming more prominent from this track forward. This track is really atmospheric and unique and sends shivers down my spine when it gets to the main riff. Next song, track 5, Submarine. This is the track that I was talking about with the Turtles, except at a 70s vision of a funeral in the future. There's some organ stuff going on in the background. I think it's synth. It works well. The vocals are pretty much the same as the last song, and the instrumentation is what shines here again, particularly the bass work, which is nearly subconscious. It blends so well. It's like generic pop overwritten by mournful indie, like, like when your favorite obscure band covers a mainstream hit in their own way. The whole song comes together really well. Track 6, Queen of Rivertown. 
This one starts off a lot like the last two songs, but it has a much different feel to it. A warmer one, similar to an old memory of a springtime hookup. The lyrics are very personal and intimate. It kicks off toward the end of the song and becomes a lot more energetic. There's this really cool thing that happens near the end where the vocals come in in harmony and do this sort of fantasy-sounding thing that I can't really describe at all. It's not the strongest song on the album, but it's got something going for it. Track 7, Captain. The song is much simpler than the others and focuses mainly on the acoustic guitar and vocals. The reverb is almost gone with this song, and the background guitar creates this crazy cool dissonance without actually falling too far out of line with the overall sound of the song. The song actually reminds me a lot of Elliot Smith. In fact, this whole album has that going for it a little. There's some sort of woodwind instrument slash synth going on in the background, creating fantasy vibe and making it feel all hobbity. Geez, running short on time here. Track 8, Little Indian. The reverb makes a major comeback on this track. At this point, all resemblances to Star Effort have faded away outside of the percussion somewhat. There's some more fantasy-sounding woodwind going on in the background and halfway through the song. Everything but the vocals drops out and this 80s-sounding guitar comes in and makes me question life. This song is uplifting and bears a strong resemblance to Beck in the latter half, and it's fantastic. Track 9, Valerie. This song is all over the place in genre. The background instrumentation has a darker, more intense feel during the verse. While it gets really poppy and sappy during the chorus, the lyrics are kind of shallow, but I feel like this song might be making a dig at pop in general, so I think it works. Oh man, we're almost there. Track 10, Hole. This song starts off really similar to Captain, but diverges and becomes less fantasy and more angsty, and then an angel descends from heaven and becomes the female vocalist for this in the next song. The lyrics are personal and emotional and at least somewhat deep. The song has a light reverb and is overall gorgeous. At this point, we're sitting firmly at indie folk with only a touch of electronica, which completely inverses for the next track. Track 11, track 11, Want Me. We are now firmly rooted in folk electronica. The vocals now sound like they're coming from an entirely different lead singer. Thank God the female vocalist is still here. I can't go back to living without her. The whole thing is moody and atmospheric and probably the most different song on the album. It's Fantagram mixed with Midnight City, and it's haunting and gorgeous, if a bit more generic. Done! Ugh. Okay. Whew. So there you have it, folks. Oh man, that feels so much better without that on my chest. For final notes, all I can say is that this album is just absolutely gorgeous, down-to-earth, and incredibly atmospheric. At first glance, like I said, it may seem like it's really repetitive, but after about 15 seconds or so, every song solidifies itself as its own thing. It may seem like a simple album, but underneath this is brilliant songwriting and composition, as well as modest and impassioned performance. At times, this album can feel otherworldly. The use of synth and ambience in this album is genius, and while the vocals may be samey-same, they're still well above average and balanced out by the rest of the instrumentation. This album is mellow, relaxing, and at times overwhelming, but beautiful nonetheless. Nothing on this album is going to be stuck in your head for weeks, but you'll honestly wish it was. It's brilliant, and the fact that it's so obscure is a crime to humanity. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a 6. I know you're probably wondering why it's not a 7, and I can honestly say that it's only because it's similar to a lot of other things out there in this indie genre. Still, while it may not be groundbreaking material, the production and quality is leagues above others like it, which makes me rate the album as high as I have. Please, PLEASE go listen to this album. Falling Inside by N.Lannon. You will not regret it. That about wraps it up. You can find this album on YouTube, Spotify, and on the artist's website, www.inlannon.com. As for me, I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Meerkat, Klesk, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. You can send me requests for reviews by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org and putting review request in the subject line. You might also be able to visit EOT's Tumblr page and try that, but I have no idea how that works, so that's up to you. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time.
Good evening to you listeners out there. This is the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events and activities occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area. So first off, I hope you all had a great holiday weekend and things weren't too crazy between tailgating, the Hillsboro hike, and whatever else you had planned that holiday evening. But now we're back in the swing of things. It's Tuesday evening and I'm here to tell you what's going on for the rest of this week. So let me just go ahead and start diving right in. As you all may be familiar with at this point, the campus farm Farmers Market will be this Wednesday, and this provides a weekly service to the faculty, staff, and students of NC State and the surrounding communities. This market holds all products that are from North Carolina to further serve NC State's responsibility as a land-grant university, supporting North Carolina agriculture and enhancing our local economy by fostering this direct farmer-to-consumer interaction. In addition to promoting these interactions, the educational booth run by the market's student board provides an additional educational opportunity at the university. The farmer's market occurs from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. in the Brickyard. As always, the farmer's market is open to the public. So we all know it's getting colder, it's really rainy, and winter's coming around the corner. So the Student Health Center is holding a flu vaccine clinic this Wednesday and Thursday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., this does not require an appointment. Just bring out your insurance card and your student ID to receive a flu shot at no direct cost to you. Student Health will bill the cost of the vaccine to your insurance company. Hunt Library will be hosting the Moho Architectural Movie Series this Thursday from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. This week is a double feature. The screenings include The House America's Been Waiting For, which documents the rise and fall of engineering visionary Carl Stradlaud and his post-World War II brainchild, the Lustrin, porcelain-enameled steel-manufactured house. And the second movie is called Little Boxes, The Legacy of Henry Dogler. This documentary is aimed toward celebrating the life and works of SF Bay Area real estate development icon Henry Dogler, a pioneer of mid-century modern design. The doors open at 7 p.m. Tickets are $10 at the door cash check credit debit are available mod squad members get in free until capacity is reached the first 100 ncsu students with id get in free ncsu friends of the library get 10 percent off of tickets the moho architectural movie series is co-presented by north carolina modernist houses so coming up this friday is an event hosted by the nc state executive education it's a monthly series that offers lunch it's titled Wolfpack your lunch this month's topic is immigration distilling facts from fiction this event will be presented by university faculty scholar Dr. Akram Katter. He will provide an overview of the research and outreach underway at the center, centering his presentation within context of the debates and discussions about immigration. The program begins with networking at 1145 and the talk begins at noon, followed by a Q&A session and concludes at 1 p.m. Just to provide a little bit more about the speaker, Dr. Catter, native of Lebanon, learned his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from California Polytech State University and his master's and doctoral degrees in history from the University of California 
Santa Cruz, and University of California, Berkeley, respectively. In addition to his numerous publications, he has delivered more than 300 talks in the past 10 years on topics related to the Middle East, including most recently the Arab Spring. He has received numerous awards and grants during his tenure at NC State, including fellowships from the National Humanities Center, American Philosophical Society, National Endowment for the Humanities, Fulbright Foundation, and Council of American Overseas Research Centers. These one-hour interactive sessions provide insight and perspective on topics to the innovation and growth of the Research Triangle Park and North Carolina. Registration is required, and you may find the link to register by Google searching Wolfpack Your Lunch. This event will be in Hunt Library this Friday from 11.45 a.m. to 1 p.m. So later on that Friday evening will be WKNC's Friday on the Lawn concert. This is going to be from 5 to 7 out at Harris Field, which is right in front of Witherspoon Hall. So this week's installment will feature distinctively pop feel performances by Chapel Hill's Sunshine Faces and Charlotte's own post-internet emotive indie pop quartet called the mineral girls again this event is from five to seven friday evening so last up on this evening's community calendar is run for their lives this saturday from 8 a.m to noon run for their lives is a freedom 424 event that raises awareness and funds to bring sexually exploited women and children into freedom register to run and take a stand against sexual exploitation and human trafficking you may register to run at r4tl.com. So that concludes the community calendar for this week. I am Peter Swazeni, wishing you guys all a great week ahead. This is Ian Grice with Eye on the Triangle. Now that Halloween is over, it's time to start planning for the next year. Here are some tips to keep in mind from the Division of Academic and Student Affairs. If your costume could be viewed as culturally, ethnically, or racially based then it's probably racist. If you need to defend the costume with relax, it's just a costume, you may be saying that you don't care that much about the implications of this costume because the implications do not affect yourself. If the costume derives its humor or sexiness from someone else's culture, race, or ethnicity, then don't wear it. Sometimes the best test for a costume is the embarrassment test. Whether you like it or not, a picture of you in the costume will end up on the internet whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the news media. If it ends up in the news, it probably won't be because you won a costume contest at a bar downtown. You can learn more at dasa.ncsu.edu slash Halloween dash homecoming. I was a chastity belt, which is an inclusive costume. And I was Amy Winehouse, which is a specific person. And it was a, it was a lot of fun being... Being her. Yes, I was, uh, it, mine was a band, the band Chastity Belt. Um, it was a belt with a lock on it. We would like to thank Peter Svazeni, Jake Winters, Brittany Jesse, Nick Weaver, and Nick Weaver. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, tweet us at WKNC-EOT or check out our blog at blog.wknc.org where you can also download our podcast. And you can check out another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Martha Donnestorg.